We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. Uh, this week, we'll be talking Lampard and Cat and Manaus and the U.S. men's national team and Weston and Chucky and Adidas and NWSL and Brady and so much more. But first joining me as always, oh yes, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, January 25th in the year 2021? I am doing well and happy to be back to our normal Monday taping schedule. Yeah, we've been a little off last couple of weeks. Thank you for indulging us. Uh, some of it just uh, couldn't have been helped, um, but we appreciate uh, that you roll with the changes. Uh, speaking of changes, uh, it, for those that watch this pod um, and listen, obviously, or maybe just watch it and, and mute us, uh, you will notice that I am coming to you from a different uh uh, vista, uh, different surroundings. I'm in the process of moving. Uh, apologies if uh, if this is jarring to you. We're just you know just trying to set it all up. Who knows what it's going to look like, and it will change as we uh, as we go on. I, I think I mentioned last week when you move, uh, you, you just come across so much crap that you accumulate. And I have used this opportunity to to cleanse, literally to cleanse. Uh, my life and myself of all of this extra baggage and stuff. Uh, I've been digitizing stuff that it's not as if I needed any of this uh, or needed this picture, but I've had it around. I've come across a lot of memorabilia. I don't have the time nor the inclination to find out if there is somebody out there that would pay for it. So I'm not monetizing any of it. Any of it. Most of it I'm, I'm, I'm throwing away. And it, most of it, to be quite honest, only means something maybe to me. And even then, I'm throwing it away. So you see how much it means to me. But it is a very cathartic type of exercise and experience to, uh, to go through something like that. Mossy, what, what, uh, what, what, what uh, went on in your life this past week? Uh, well, a few television developments. I did watch okay. the uh, Night Stalker uh, documentary, uh, which I know you have and? as well. I found it interesting. Uh, I have to say, and I know this is very disturbing, but I've watched so many serial killer documentaries mm. that they are starting to blend uh, a little bit. Uh, it, it does have to be something like extra, extra, really well done to grab me at this point. And then also got my little Paris fix in uh, two shows. Uh, have you watched any of this Lupin, which is the new Netflix sensation? Uh, it actually just beat out Queen's Gambit for a number of uh, viewers. Uh, no, I'm going to watch Lupin. OK, <laughs> um, but 
Uh, I haven't watched the one you're watching um, it. And then, uh, the, oh my God, can you get more high and mighty with your French? And then the uh, other so one, it's it's, it's L U P I N, right? And it's pronounced Lupin. Uh, correct. And then the other show that I've recently adopted is this Call My Agent, which is uh, another French show. It's about this uh, talent agency based in Paris that represents movie stars. Uh, and uh, and I'm thoroughly enjoying that. There have been four seasons of that, six episodes per season. I'm in the middle of season two. Uh, it was recommended to me uh, by a friend and uh, it's been a home run. I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. So uh, getting getting my Paris fix in with those two programs. You know, I love that city. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that sounds good. Now, I will uh, I will check out Lupin because, like you said, I, I you're not the only person that has mentioned it to me. Lupin, excuse me. I binged and went right through a seven episode. By the way, by the way, before I tell you, I completely understand, and it, it frightens me a little that you and I don't think you're alone because of the the true crime type of documentary world that exists out there, and especially in pandemic, where we're just watching everything that we have become. Not blasé, but a little, a little more immune to, uh, you know, just the horror and 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 the, you know, it's just a serial killer documentary, just another one. Um, and yet, obviously, it's 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 real life. But such is uh, the world that we are uh, that we are living in. Okay, so uh, as I said, I binged through something, and while I was watching this, I thought of you. You remember the uh, World Cup back in uh, Brazil? When was that? Uh, 2014. 2014. Yep. 14 wonderful summer uh, that we spent down there in uh, in Brazil for the World Cup. Um, one of the places that was a uh, uh, a host site for the World Cup was a place called Manaus. Okay, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, Mossy. Um, it is a city, and it is a city, but it is um, an island within the Amazon. Is that fair to say, Mossy? I think um, it, it, it. You get to it by uh, boat or by air. You do not drive to it. And it was a host city. Uh, as a matter of fact, the U.S. played uh, a game there. And it was to kind of uh, give deference to the fact that part of Brazil is the Amazon and that this was this location. I watched a documentary that is, I think it's seven parts. I could be wrong. Uh, it is all in Portuguese, obviously the language which is spoken there, which means there's subtitles, which means that you can't be doing anything else while you're watching something like that if you don't speak Portuguese. It is this incredible and nutty story. Of, uh, and the, the translation for the title of this is, um, I'm going to remember it, because it's Banditos de, de televis Televisión in Portuguese or, or something like that. But it's Killer Ratings is what it's called in English. And it's this nutty story about this TV personality who was also a politician who made his name on television by having this show that revolved around crime, and there's a high crime rate and crime areas in many places in Manaus, by being on site and live and covering these horrible and devastating uh, and incredibly violent types of assassinations and murders uh, within the criminal underground of existence. And we come to find out that he and others are end up end up being accused of actually manufacturing these situations to benefit in terms of the ratings of the television show. I can't remember uh, the guy's name. His name's Wallace, but that's neither here nor there. It is a really, really interesting deep dive into the criminal underground, uh, the media, uh, and the media, the part that the media play, obviously uh, law enforcement and what's going on there, 
but it is it is just a nutty type of uh, documentary. Probably a little too long when all is said and done, but there's nothing no such thing as too long in the age of uh, the pandemic. Yeah, Manaus has been in the news lately for tragic reasons. It's become the epicenter of the coronavirus in Brazil. Uh, it was also in the news uh, back in 2014 for a more amusing reason. Uh, England boss Roy Hodgson uh, kept talking incessantly in the lead up to the draw and the tournament that he wanted to avoid England having to play any games in Manaus because of the heat and the conditions. And, and he said it so many times that the mayor of Manaus took offense to it and, and came out and attacked Hodgson and said, well, well, we wish we would get a better team than England playing in Manaus too. And so there was a funny little back and forth between the uh, mayor of Manaus and the then England manager. So yeah, it's a, uh... Well, anyway, I do recommend it. You'd like it, Mossy. Uh, obviously, the connection to Brazil and, and being in Portuguese and all that. But it is, it's is—it's still an, a really interesting story. And I, I had not heard about it. They did show clips at a time because it did become international news. I just it, I, I, it didn't register on my uh, on my radar. But that's how big this scandal, if you will, uh, got with regards to what was being done. And it, it, and it's it's all kind of couched in, in the. In, is he actually doing it, doing something that is good for the community, or is he taking advantage of the bad that already exists and benefiting both politically and personally and financially? Um, and you know, so that it delves into all that. It doesn't necessarily ultimately answer the question. There's convictions and non-convictions and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't necessarily come to the conclusion as to whether he ultimately is a saint uh, or a sinner. And there's a lot of people on both sides, uh, but I do recommend it. All right, Masi, enough of this. Uh, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. Uh, we are going to start right off the bat because, uh, oh, everybody loves a draft, right? Uh, we're going to jump right into the uh, MLS draft and not necessarily in the weeds because I know you listen to that and there's a lot of people even that are into MLS that say, oh my goodness, uh, we're going to talk about the MLS draft. And and the reason why that reaction happens, Masi, is... Uh, that you know, Major League Soccer, as it has grown, as it has evolved, has changed. And something like the Major League Soccer draft that was, for many, many years, very, very important, um, has become uh, not inconsequential, but certainly does not garner the type of attention that it did you know, when I was starting out covering the league. Um, the, the draft used to be a huge, huge opportunity from a broadcast perspective. Everybody would get together. Uh, we would go down to Florida. We would watch the combine. We would. I spent. I mean, I, I when I back when I worked at ESPN, we did it. We did it for many, many years. I spent hours and days and ultimately weeks preparing for these draft broadcast shows uh, and researching every single player and meeting individually with the players and finding out all this uh, all this stuff about players. For the, for the most part, even back then, the majority of that information, it was the most labor-intensive type of work that you could do uh, with very little ultimate payoff other than you have that nugget and you're talking about things because a lot of the players even back then didn't ultimately make it through. And even less so now because the pathway to the professional game and to MLS now oftentimes bypasses college, which where, where a lot of these players uh, come from. But anyway, we had a, uh, an MLS draft. And that's not to say that talent can't be had and talent can't be found. It's just, it's just not the, the main source of getting talent. And I think that uh, many teams and the league as a whole has recognized this, which, uh, which, which shows in the, the lack of interest and the lack of relevance that uh, the MLS draft now holds when it comes to it. Austin FC, uh, obviously the team that is coming into 
the league this year uh, had the first pick. I guess it would be controversial in that. And look, I'm, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to speak for you here, Mossy. We are certainly not experts when it comes to any of these players here uh, or following each and every player and each and every team when it comes to the collegiate ranks, especially given what I just told you about what's going, uh, what's going on in the world. The, 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 the world has evolved, the soccer world has evolved, and, and MLS is involved. Austin FC came in and drafted uh, midfielder out of Virginia Tech, Daniel Pereira. Now, this was not something that all the people that do pay attention, all three or four that do pay attention, uh, had predicted. A lot of people pre uh, predicted the Clemson midfielder, uh, Philip Mayaka, to go. He ended up going three to uh, Colorado Rapids. Again, Mossy, like in any draft, in any sport, there's this balance of do you take best available and therefore gain that asset that then maybe you can trade on or, or get something for? Or do you draft specifically for what you need and uh, out of necessity? And the, the balance shifts different ways at, uh, at different times. From your perspective, big picture uh, first, Mossy. Have I framed it correctly as to what the MLS draft is in 2021 right now? Yes, uh, and I find this debate fascinating. It occurs every year around this time uh, regarding the relevance of the Super Draft. Uh, you know, people point to the greater financial flexibility that MLS clubs now have to sign overseas talent and also the fact that the academy system is now humming along. And so even clubs like Philadelphia, they like to build from within. They do it through signing homegrown players rather than through the draft. People point to the overall diminishing numbers of players from the super draft that actually make MLS rosters, much less become impact players. And so there's this argument that this has become obsolete. It's a relic of a bygone era and needs to be completely rethought. And MLS did shorten the amount of rounds. So that was some acknowledgement mm -hmm. that this can no longer exist the way it once did. But there are other people who point to the fact that there still are just enough success stories to make this uh, viable. Um, you know, Atlanta United uh, drafted uh, Gressel in 2017, and he became a, a key player for them when they won MLS Cup. Orlando City have uh, made great use of the draft in recent years. They drafted Chris Mueller in 2018, Daryl DK in 2020. Um, so, you know, there are these players out there that you can get. So, and and from what you read, Don Garber does love the draft. You know, he thinks it's, it's sort of an ingrained part of American sports culture and all the other top leagues have it. And it's kind of a big day that you get to have uh, during the offseason, there's sort of a cottage industry around drafts with mock drafts and people debating winners and losers. And he likes that photo op of young players holding up MLS jerseys. And so he wants to preserve all that. So I think the draft is here to stay in some form, but uh, it is fair to discuss uh, how relevant it, it still is. If you are one that believes when we talk in our game uh, about identity uh, and style of play and culture, fostering culture, we're going to talk a lot about culture here in a little bit when we talk about uh, Frank Lampard. Uh, if you are one that believes that that is important and that uh, when that happens in the correct way, it can it can foster the players and and provide success, then it stands to reason that somebody that came up in your academy and therefore was ingrained in whatever that culture is, whatever that identity is, would be more valuable than somebody that has just come from the outside and has had no contact or understanding or association with what that culture, with that, with that, with what that culture is. To your point, Mossy, you know, I remember back when, uh, back when I was working in front offices, I would always tell our staff, look, if you get one player that makes an impact, and when I say make an impact, it's either a starter or, or somebody that contributes real types of minutes through the year. If you get one player out of the draft, consider yourself lucky and your job has been done. 
Anything else is grave is gravy and wonderful. But I, I would has <clears throat> I w- you know I would caution that if there are teams out there that are just punting on the draft and not paying any attention at all to it. I think you're doing a disservice to to your organization. Now, you mentioned Philadelphia and mentioned, you know, they they very very publicly have said we we don't see any value in these draft picks. Not that they're not necessarily good players. I think it goes back to my other point about how they're not necessarily ingrained in that culture and so if we have a choice with a young player who understands what it is to be in the Philadelphia Union versus a player that, while me, while certainly could be a good player, but doesn't have that association, that background, we're going to side with that player. And they, they trade all of their picks and they just, uh, they just go on. But I, I think that even today in 2021, with as much as it has changed and evolved, you still have to be doing your job. And if there is talent out there, even in the form of an asset out there that you can trade and, uh, and, to, to, to get money to do something else, you, you got to do that. And I do think that MLS and, and most of the teams, uh, most of the teams are, are doing that. You know, when I, you know, when I go down the, uh, the list of players drafted in, uh, in round one here this year, you know, for example, just if you pull up, you know, pull up uh, Wikipedia, for example, of the 27 players in the uh, first round, and this is not science, by the way, but but it's just an indication here. One, two, three, five or six of them actually have Wikipedia pages. The rest are all red, okay? Uh, and they're just starting out their career, some of them. Uh, some of them are, uh, you know, finishing out college. Some of them are coming out, uh, coming out early. Uh, and you never know. You, you, you never really know. You, 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 you assess and you try to extrapolate it out. This player here was, uh, at this point was this, and we think he's going to be this. But you never know. And a lot of it has to do with timing. A lot of it has to do with the environment, like we said, that those players are coming into. A lot of it has to do with opportunity. New coach, um, players retiring, players that are injured, players that just from a fundamental stance look at young players and are going to play young players. And that's all different. So when that name is read and you hear that, na- that team that you're associated with, there, there's a whole lot of other stuff that comes with that. But regardless, congratulations to all of the different players. Um, the, the first round, usually, they're pretty, they're pretty good and smart as to what they, as they, as to what they pick. But you, you, just, you just don't know. And the past is littered with players that were drafted high that ended up doing, didn't, not necessarily doing a whole lot or living up to those expectations. And plenty of players that weren't drafted high that went on to have not just good careers, but historic careers and long careers. You look at, you know, I don't know, Jeff Lorenowitz. When was Jeff Lorenowitz uh, drafted? Or, you know, there, there's, there's, there's plenty of players out there that you could point to that weren't touted as the greats coming out, and yet they went on to be great. Well, um, you know, so the ACC was the only uh, major conference that played in the fall, and that impacted the draft very much so because 12 of the first 27 picks, including the first five, were all ACC players. Um, I did want to ask you, you were the general manager for three different MLS clubs. Is there a particular draft selection that you're proud of that uh, a player that you drafted that uh, went on to have a good career? Any uh, 
Any any well, draft memories you can Altidore. tell us about? We also drafted Josie Altidore when I was at the uh, the Metro Stars. Josie Altidore in the second round. That that looked pretty good. Uh, I will give most of the credit to the coaching staff, including uh, Bob Bradley, who knew exactly what was going on there. Uh, we also benefited from, and there's all the drama and theater that goes on, and all the politicking that goes on. Josie wanted specifically to go to the Metro Stars, and he made it very very clear, which is why he fell. And and but it. It doesn't matter. It looks it looks very very you know very good now uh, because of the player that he ultimately became, uh, the money that was involved in his transfer, all all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, that was that was good. But it, it it's hit and miss. And you know, I really I enjoyed. You know, I, I mentioned the process from a broadcast perspective, but I was also involved in all of the uh, the drafts being there. And the interview process for me was just as interesting and, and ultimately entertaining as, as anything. Because I, I wanted to know what kind of players we were getting. You know, just because you can kick a ball, I mean, we'll forgive a lot of things for, for greatness uh, and for wonderful athletes. But I also wanted to know, is this player going to be a problem child? Is this player going to, am I going to have to get up in the middle of the night and go bail somebody out? Uh, you know, is, is, is this player going to be a problem relative to the other players or the coach that we have? And the scenario that we are dropping him into. And you learn so much by sitting and talking to, talking to these players. And, you know, they say interesting things. They might get you to think differently about them, but maybe in a positive or a, or a negative way. But I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I still, when I see players running around on the field, sometimes I still think about, oh, I remember being in Fort Lauderdale when that player was a potential player we were going to pick, because you meet with all of the players. You don't necessarily pick them all, obviously, but you meet with them. And remember, this player said that his favorite band was this, or this player said that he liked this ridiculous hobby. or And you know all these little nuggets, from a broadcast perspective, when I was doing the meetings, this was gold, because for a lot of times, you're on television, you're not the expert in terms of having seen all of these players play. So you got to do your research and you got to get down and figure out what, what these players are. And so, you know, I would have just the actual X's and O's of what they were on the field as players, but I would also have, you know, shout outs to their girlfriend. It, <laughs> it I mean, a couple of times, I swear to God, I shouted out to a girlfriend that ended up not being their girlfriend. Okay. Or there was another girlfriend that needed to be shouted out to too. So it's, it was it was a fun time uh, that probably will never happen again, and it's only going to become not irrelevant, uh, but just certainly less relevant uh, going on. Anything else, Mossy, with regards to the uh, the draft? No, that's it. Okay, all of these players that were drafted, whether it's Daniel Pereira at number one, or uh, let's see who Justin Malou, Malau uh, for the Columbus Crew at number twenty-seven, the last uh, pick in the uh, in the first round, and we can even go to not Mister Irrelevant, but uh, the New York Red Bulls passed. So Seattle Sounders at pick eighty picked a guy named T.J. Bush, a goalkeeper out of James Madison. Doesn't matter whether it's T.J. Bush at the eightieth pick, like I said, uh, or Daniel Pereira at the first pick. A lot of them want to go and play internationally, and a lot of them uh, are eligible to play for the U.S. men's national team, which kicks us off into a U.S. men's national team uh, discussion. They're back, baby. We saw the women's national team over the last week uh, come back, and it's just fun because Greg Berhalter and company are getting the uh, band together for 2021. Now, it's, it's, it's not the full band. We all understand that. Uh, as is often the case, the January camp is made up almost exclusively of 
domestic-based players, mostly uh, out of MLS, that get together because the European players aren't released, uh, such is the case again uh, at this point. Uh, for the game against Trinidad and uh, Tobago, which is uh, Monday, if I'm not mistaken, right? Is that uh, is that when the uh, game is next Monday? We're broadcasting that, so I should probably know that. Is it Sunday or Monday? I think it's Monday. our producers. I don't know. We'll figure we'll figure it out. I mean, you know, well, I mean, look, we'll be there, right? Sunday, we'll there. yeah. Sunday. Sorry, it's Sunday. All right. Well, you were right. So Sunday, we will be broadcasting the United States uh, versus uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Remember Trinidad and Tobago? Yeah, I remember them. Uh, oh, boy. They, they will always live long and, and make many U.S. Uh, men's national team supporters shudder. But it's 2021 now, and we get to see this, this new crop of players. And at a time when, as I've said before, I, I mean, we're incredibly op optimistic right now and confident about the group that is being uh, amassed, especially with the quality and talent, especially some of the places that they are playing, whether it's Barcelona or Juventus or Chelsea or uh, uh, or uh, Borussia Dortmund, and, and the list goes on and on and on. But you also have all of this domestic talent that is uh, that is vying to be on the national team. And so this is a real look for uh, Greg Berhalter to try to figure out who are those other players? who are Who is going to challenge all of this talent that we have kind of already anointed as starters and anointed as going to be carrying the team. And, and a lot of that is fair to do. Um, so when I look down this roster and this final roster now that, uh, that has been put out, because there was a big camp, as is often the case, and keep in mind that the Olympic team, the under-23 team, is training at the same time, getting ready to qualify, hopefully qualify for the Olympics uh, this summer. And there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of players that could play for both of those teams. I guess theoretically anybody could because you get the three overage players, but you still have to qualify first. But when I look at this, I, I, you know, there's a lot of zeros when it comes to number of caps. You know, for goalkeepers, all zeros in the three with Freeze, uh, Marcinkowski, and, uh, and Turner. I think Matt Turner will probably get the nod. He's the oldest of 26, uh, but who knows? You never know what happens in camp. Uh, and then when you go down the line, there's just a lot of zeros. And then you get to zero caps, zero caps, zero caps, zero caps, 115 caps. Speaking of Josie Altidore, he is in camp. Uh, since he made this final roster here, I'm assuming that he is fit and healthy. But the reality is that Greg Berhalter uh, needs to see what Josie looks like. We want to see what Josie looks like. It's amazing. Josie's only 31 years old, but he is 31 years old, and we know about his uh, problems from a physical perspective. Why is that interesting? Because someone like Daryl DK is also in camp, age 20, and with Josh Sargent, notwithstanding the goal that he scored uh, recently, he, he, he still not. I don't think anybody is still secure. Uh, as to who is going to take up that mantle for uh, Josie Altidore, or if it will be Josie Altidore continuing on. Paul Areola in camp. He's another one with some experience as he's uh, getting ready to uh, probably go over there on uh, loan like Jordan Morris. So that'll be interesting too. Chris Mueller, who had a great year. Now that's, that's from a, uh, a forward perspective. Um, some some usual suspects in uh, Sebastian Legette, Le Le Kellen Acosta, who's just a, a, a whole story unto himself about the rise and fall and maybe the rise again of what was once considered the heir apparent to that, uh, to that midfield. Um, defenders, uh, guys like Sam Vines, 21, uh, outside back. 
Walker Zimmerman in, in camp, uh, Aaron Long. So definitely some names that we have seen that I think will continue on, but also an opportunity for Greg Berhalter to see some different, uh, different players. All right, that's my long rip there, just getting everybody caught up to date on what's happening with the U.S. men's national team. Initial thoughts on this camp and this team, Aussie. Well, I know Greg Berhalter doesn't want us to be constantly pitting the MLS guys against the European-based players and viewing the U.S. talent pool through that lens, but it's sort of become unavoidable in the last few months because all these squads have either been one way or the other. The U.S. played two friendlies in November against Wales and Panama, in which the squad was almost entirely European-based, with the exception of Sebastian Legette. And then they played that friendly in December against El Salvador, where it was all Uh, domestic-based, and now this friendly against TNT in January is all domestic-based. And yeah, I mean, at a time when there's so much excitement about the European contingent, and by the way, the the pendulum keeps swinging that way with this latest batch of departures, Jordan Morris, Brendan Aronson, Brian Reynolds, Mark McKenzie, um, you, you sort of can't help but view this match coming up as a chance for the MLS guys to remind people, hey, don't forget about us. And there's still some good players in in MLS and and that are, you know, want to carve out some sort of role with the U.S. moving forward. And so you start to look at what are the positions where that's realistic. Um, and, and and I keep going back to center forward. Uh, to me, you know, if you look at uh, from the midfield up, especially with Jordan Morris now in Europe, it's hard to find a position other than center forward where there's a chance for an MLS player to emerge as a starter. Because when you have McKinney and Adams, Reyna, Pulisic, Morris, Yunus Musa, Boy, I mean, those positions seem to be uh, pretty well accounted for. But center forward is where, as you mentioned. Why? Hold on. Why? 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 Why are they accounted for? uh, Because I I know what you say, just because uh, a a guy's European club pedigree, he shouldn't be handed a a position. I agree with that. But I I happen to like all those players. I think they're worthy of the prestige that they've. uh, But if they were the same player and playing (laughs) in MLS, would you like them, quote unquote, like them? Yeah, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. No, you wouldn't. It's okay, though. It's um, okay. I, I, but, uh, listen, but, I get it. I get it. But center I forward totally is a position it. where, at, at, even in the European contingent, there's a whole lot of maybes. Obviously, Josh Sargent. We have this new kid emerging, Matthew Hoppy at Schalke, Joe Aquino, mm-hmm. Soto, who scored in the November friendlies, but nobody that's really sort of uh, staked their claim to definitely being the guy. So, yeah, there's room there for younger MLS players like DK or guys like Altidore and Zardes, who I know you're, you're definitely not ready to discard. And you think uh, in the absence of a young player really emerging, those guys should still be looked at as viable options. And then other positions on the field. I think that other center back spot alongside John Brooks is still kind of up in the air. And yep. then at fullback, I kind of suspect the way this is going to go is that he's going to play either Brian Reynolds or Reggie Cannon on the right and move Serginho Dest to the left. But there is a world in which Burhalter decides that, no, I want to play Serginho Dest at his best position, which is right back. And then that would op- open up an opportunity at left back for somebody like Sam Vine. So to me, those are the positions I'm looking at the most as opportunities for an MLS guy to really break through. Well, see, uh, this is uh, give me a little bit of context uh, from your Brazilian team, because uh, I, I'm saying I'm not saying it's it's exact parallels uh, and in many ways it may be apples and oranges. But I, I talk often about the, you know, the inferiority complex that we have as American soccer uh, in American soccer and the insecurities that we have when when and I remember uh, I remember doing different World Cups and it just seemed to me that the pro- look this is brazil an incredible exporter of talent to the quote unquote greatest leagues and, and clubs in the world right and yet there seemed to be much more of a 
a nationalistic type of pride when a player that was playing in Brazil was also playing on the national team. Um, and I don't, I don't think we have that. And, and um, once again, very different types of histories and, cult and cultures when it comes to uh, when it comes to the soccer. But you know, this is going to come to a head for Greg Berhalter and for the national team. And he's going to have to make some real tough decisions. And he's going to have to make them with an understanding that there is this sentiment out there that the minute you are stepping on, in, in most cases, European soil, that you are automatically a better uh, player than the, the, the six hours before when you left JFK. So, uh, and he is going to, at times, probably, I mean, you mentioned Sam Vines. If Sam, uh, Sam Vines, who is, 20, for those who don't know, 21-year-old uh, left back uh, playing for the Colorado Rapids. If Sam Vines is the starting left back for the United States men's national team in the next, uh, in the next World Cup, you know that before he kicks a ball, he is going to be looked at askew. He is going to be looked down on simply for the fact that he plays uh, with the Colorado Rapids. And to your point, people are going to say, well, why don't you just put uh, Serginho Dest on the left-hand side? Because Serginho Dest plays at Barcelona. And look, Serginho Dest is a wonderful, wonderful player. I'm not saying that he, sh he shouldn't play. I'm just you know, stressing again that it... <laughs> It is not about the best players. It is about the best collection of players. And I think this is an opportunity in front of Greg Berhalter. And Greg Berhalter, I think, is a strong man. I think that he is, in a sense, courageous and actually would welcome the opportunity to say, you know what? Ultimately, this assessment, it's not about your resume, okay? It's about how you are going to do the job in the position that I want that job to be done. And it doesn't matter where you ultimately come from. And I think he will actually relish at times making that uh, decision. But it's going to be hard because he's going to take he's going to take heat until that player ultimately plays. And if that player plays well, it's going to be in spite of the fact that he plays in this case Major League Soccer or someplace domestically. And if that play, player plays poorly, then you know that the knives are going to be out for Greg Berhalter, and it's going to be well. You started an MLS player. And these are the these are the results. Uh, I I actually I'm really really interested to see how it is. Anyway, I asked you a question at the beginning of that about uh, about Brazil. No, I, I it, it's a major issue in Brazil. Uh, people have developed a huge complex over the fact that the national team is comprised almost entirely of European-based players. They don't like it, and they're the media is constantly campaigning for there to be more domestic-based players. And you're right, whenever a domestic-based player does break through, like the, the Everybody takes great pride in that. So, yeah, the, this is a major issue in Brazil, and 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 I think the U.S. is headed that way as it's well. The, it's the exact opposite in the U.S. We are actively campaigning for players not to be <laughs> on the national team that are that are uh, domestic players. But you know, one position I left. First off, I think I called him Joe Aquino. It's Joe Aquini. So my apologies there for the the striker. But uh, I left out goalkeeper. Uh, but the more I think about it, it, not everybody is on this page that Zach Steffen is clearly the guy. And you mentioned Matt Turner. I know there are a lot of people that feel like he deserves to get a look as potentially the, the U.S. starter. I mean, are, are you as high on Matt Turner as others? Are you curious to see him play here and see how he performs? I mean, we've seen the problem is, is that Zach Steffen playing at one of the great clubs in the world is not tested uh, oft, often. First off, he's got to get on the field. And we at least saw during the, uh, the COVID situation that they had here that at least he was the number two and, and was, was on the field, which is great. But even when he's on the field, 
the team has most of the possession. Uh, they face very, very few shots, as opposed to someone like Matt Turner, who has made his name on being an incredible shops, a shot stopper for, uh, for New England. The, the problem that, that he would have or anybody else would have relative to uh, Zach Steffen is the ability to play out of the back. Now, that becomes less and less important the more elite and the less possession that the U.S. has, because then you got to stop those shots. But I do think that Greg Berhalter is going to lean on Zach Steffen because of the way that Greg Berhalter wants to play. Greg Berhalter is a true believer in the way that he wants to play, especially when it comes to playing out of the back, and he will die on that hill. Um, and I love that about him because that, to me, that's true identity. That's true style of play. It's not at the first sign of, uh, uh, of difficulty abandoning your philosophy. That's what he believes that uh, it's going to be done, and he needs the players in those positions to do that. So that diagonal ball from the goalkeeper that just goes right over the, uh, uh, the striker's head to the outside back, you've got to be able to play that. You have to be able to play it under duress, and you have to have the, the footwork to be able to do that on a consistent basis and the confidence, by the way, to do that. And sometimes that confidence is given from the outside, but you gotta, as an individual player, have to have that. So if Matt Turner is great at, sh at shot stopping, but he can't play out of the back or can't do the things that Greg Berhalter wants, I think that's going to be a real knock against him um, because I think, that, I think that Greg Berhalter is going to start a goalkeeper first and foremost that will play the way he wants him to play. And you're going to say to me, well, what we want him to do is save the ball, which is the, the ultimate job of the goalkeeper. Yes, but the game and the position has evolved where it's not just about doing that. Um, other stuff that uh, stood out to you, two 19-year-olds on the team, including uh, Tanner Tessman uh, from uh, FC Dallas. A lot of rumors about him and where he's going to go. And George Bellow from uh, Atlanta United. So, you know, as I said, Jason Kreiss and the U.S. men's Olympic team, which is gearing up for qualification for the uh, postponed Olympics that theoretically are supposed to happen <laughs> this summer. Uh, we'll see. Knock on wood. Hopefully everything goes as planned. And hopefully the U.S. men qualify and go there because we've missed a bunch of cycles. And this, I think, will be huge in terms of getting a core group of players, and as I mentioned, a lot of young players that could be also eligible and also um, on, the, uh, on the radar when it comes to the full national team to get that type of experience. Uh, other stuff that jumps out to you, uh, you, you Daryl DK, uh, you mentioned um, up top, who, who's going to be that challenger for, uh, for, Josie, uh, for Josie Altidore right now? And it's just, it's wide open right now, as we've said many, many times, for someone to come in and take that job. Uh, well, uh, one name that caught my eye, and this could make for a perfect segue for the U.S. women, is that okay. Andres Perea was uh, officially granted a one-time switch uh, by FIFA, the Orlando City uh, midfielder uh, uh, who's represented Colombia at youth level, but he is now a part of the U.S. Uh, national team mix. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, and it, uh, well, just before you go, I mean, you know, we we criticize when I think is fair and appropriate to criticize, but we should also um, make sure that we we praise when individuals and organizations and associations do a good job. And one of the priorities um, of whether it's Ernie Stewart, uh, Brian McBride, and Greg Burhalter in terms of being those those gatekeepers and going out there and selling the program. You know, you you got to be able to do that, and that's a feather uh, that's a feather in the cap to have as as many bullets in the belt as you can possibly get when uh, when you go when you go into that go into that battle, and to have a situation where 
you are having players that are looking at the different situations and the different environments that they are going into and that there's no guarantees when these players make these decisions, but at times when it might have been more beneficial for them to choose elsewhere, when they are choosing the U.S., you know, that's something to stand on and that's something to be applauded. And so congratulations uh, once again, because he's not, it's not the first one and I don't think it will be the last. I think that they are creating something there that is, that is appealing to players. It's not just about playing in the World Cup, ultimately is about playing in a World Cup, but it's also about where is that environment that, it, that I'm going to be used and I'm going to be valued and one that I'm going to enjoy. So that's a, that's a good thing for them. All right, moving on uh, now, as you mentioned, into the U.S. women's national team, which that we just saw completely destroy Colombia. As I said last week, I think that much more was learned uh, during the camp and the actual training sessions than the actual game. Um, you know, two games that were done basically in the first couple of minutes against a pitiful Colombia uh, national team. The U.S. doesn't care. They do what they do. They score lots of goals. They don't let goals in, and they just roll over the majority of competition that exists in the world. Mossy, go ahead. Well, I, I said it was a perfect segue from Andres Perea because the U.S. women are benefiting yes. from a player that was recently granted permission by FIFA to switch allegiance to the U.S., and that's this Katarina Macario, who is the new sensation. Uh, she uh, made her debut in the match we covered uh, against Colombia. Then the U.S. played a, another friendly, as you mentioned, against Colombia, and in that one, she actually scored her first international goal in a 6-0 win. Rapino got two goals in that one. Uh, but, yeah, everybody's talking about this Katarina Macario, who looks like could potentially be a huge star. She was born in Brazil, but moved to the United States at the age of 12 and went to Stanford, was a two-time Herman Trophy winner, big, big star. And she has just signed with Lyon, who, as we know, are the, the biggest women's club team in the world. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, quite, quite the addition to what was already the best uh, best team in the world. Yeah, the, the the rich get richer. And, you know, as I mentioned last week, there's a, there's a palpable sense of excitement um, uh, because of the entertainment factor that she brings, uh, because you know, you know, look, we're talking about Megan Rapinoe, who, who didn't miss a beat, uh, albeit against a, a, as I said, a very poor Colombia team, but scoring goals, back playing, and doing all that. And so there is that old guard, but there is a hungry young guard, and a lot of really interesting and entertaining and creative and talented young talent that's coming through that is going to challenge and you know is going to make those decisions. Um, you know, interesting for uh, Vlako Andonovsky, the uh, the coach of the U.S. Uh, women's national team. But she, you know, she. I always talk about stars as when they get the ball, everybody sits up in their seat a little bit, everybody holds their breath because there's the potential for something magical to happen. And even at a young age, and even just bursting on the scene, you're still getting that about Cat. Uh, Katarina, because they call her Cat. I'm just going to call her Cat because that's a great nickname. I mean, let's be honest. She gets the ball, and it doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't also also doesn't happen all the time when Messi gets the ball or or uh, Cristiano gets the ball. But there's that potential for something to happen, and there's no fear. There's there's courage. There's uh, you know incredible creativity especially one on one on the dribble and doing all those uh, all those things there's i think there's a a power behind it and ultimately there's there's a confidence in the way that she plays and very very quickly i think she is going to you know knock on wood she stays healthy and everything 
uh, goes forward. And I think the experience that she's going to have over in France will, will also make her better. But um, this, is, this is definitely something for the U.S. to be happy about. But also, if you are in that position and you are in competition for that position, it's, uh, it's pretty crowded there. And that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for the U.S. What else, Mossy? That's it. All right, that's it. We're going to take a little break here. Uh, and then when we come back, uh, we will take a spin around Europe uh, because there were some, there's, there were some doings going on. Uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hello, State of the Union listeners. It is Alexi Lawless here to tell you about our brand new Fox Sports app and website, foxsports.com, reimagined for the modern sports fan. Go ahead and download the new app now. You don't even have to pause this episode. Every day on the new app and website, you'll see the top stories in sports, plus a rich world of written content, videos, social media, and analytics to give you a 360-degree view of the most important stories of the day. You can favorite your favorite teams and players so you'll never miss an important update. Streaming live TV has never been so easy or elegant. Every Fox Sports game, including all pregame and postgame shows, are just one click away. For the extra invested fan, we also go deep with real-time wagering lines, trending prop bets, win probability, and key player projections. So download the new Fox Sports app or visit www.foxsports.com. All right, we're back. Uh, we're going to take a little spin around the world here. Uh, what do you want to talk about first, Mossy? I mean, look, we, we, I rolled over uh, in bed early this morning. Uh, to get out of bed, and, and I looked at my phone, and there was all sorts of messages and stuff. So should we just dive right into, uh, and we may we may have even buried the lead when it comes to a soccer podcast on, uh, what is it, what did I say, on, on January 25th. Frank Lampard is no more at Chelsea. Is that what you want to go with to start uh, off? With? Yeah. You know, amazingly enough, our old producer, Alex Dowd, was a big Chelsea fan, and our new producer, Jeff Hernandez, I asked him what his favorite uh, club team is. And he, and he said, to the extent that he has a favorite club team, it would be Chelsea as well. So uh, so we, we, we continue on with a, a Chelsea uh, fan producer. So, yeah, I mean, I think anytime that club makes big news, invariably it's going to find its way into our rundown and we're, we're going to have to discuss it. Is this unfair? Okay. I mean, in this day and age where, uh, as I said, you churn them and burn them. Is what happened to Frank Lampard unfair? Look, I, I've looked at the the numbers, and there are those from the numbers standpoint that will point to you know the amount of away goals that they let in, the amount of uh, um, or the lack of uh, clean sheets that they that they posted, the winning percentage, all of those different things, and you know. But even as, as soon as well, about you know a month ago or two months ago. They weren't sitting pretty, but it could have gone both ways, and it obviously went uh, the wrong way. And there's the question, as there always is, and we look at, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, for example, of well, did you was was patience necessary in this type of perspective? Look, even in for for most clubs, they all have itchy trigger trigger fingers. For Chelsea, the fact is that he didn't win enough. And the powers that be didn't believe that given more time, that that was going to change. And so if, if you don't believe that, then of course you make a change. Because 
the only way that you grin and bear it is if you believe that that person is going to come out on the other side and you are willing to take the flack because let's be honest, while you know, there, there are plenty of people that were critical of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, and even, even remain critical, but you got to be able to withstand that, especially for a big club, and it is still a big club when it comes, uh, comes to Chelsea. But I guess my, my, my original question back to you is, was this fair, if there is such a thing as fair in soccer? Yeah, I think uh, I understand why they made the move and I can't argue with it. Uh, It is interesting that uh, we talk about how there's this ex-player fetish and a lot of clubs are choosing to hire as manager somebody that was a legendary former player at their club and that engenders some goodwill with the fan base. But it does put you in this awkward position that if it goes bad, you then have to fire a club legend. And I did find it interesting that in the press release they put out about Lampard's firing, there's a whole paragraph there from Roman Abramovich expressing how painful a decision this was because he loves Frank Lampard. And that's unheard of. Abramovich likes to stay in the background. And usually there's no quotes from him in these kinds of press releases. So even he recognized that this was a little bit different than sacking Andres Villas-Boas or, you know, Maurizio Sarri, or those Sarri left by his own uh, accord. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think what happened here, to be honest, is uh, Lampard was uniquely qualified to manage last season's Chelsea team, which was a very atypical Chelsea team. And now that Chelsea want to kind of get back to big Chelsea again, they've started to feel like the job's gotten too big for him, that he's not suited to managing all these big stars and high priced talent and, and betting in new signings. And because, you know, Chelsea, there is a sense of urgency here. They've chosen to zig while everybody else is zagged. Uh, well, everybody has has reduced their spending during this pandemic. Chelsea have seized an opportunity to to really build that squad back up. We know all the money they spent this past summer on guys like Havertz and Werner. And there's all this talk now that they're going to go after Erlen Holland this upcoming summer, while the rest of Europe is biding their time waiting for the summer of 2022 when a clause kicks in Holland's contract, which... Uh, stipulates that he has a buyout clause of 75 million euros. Chelsea want to jump ahead of the pack and they're willing to spend this upcoming summer the 150 to 200 million euros that it would take to get him before that clause kicks in. And so Roman Abramovich is very much of the mind of we got to seize on this opening here and really build this super team. But failing to qualify for the Champions League this season would be a disaster. It would undermine all of that. It's really unlikely they would be able to lure Ellen Holland if they're not in the Champions League next season. And so that's partly what he was thinking about. So yeah, the move didn't surprise me that much. And, I, you know, I, I, I'm i sorry. It's hard to have sympathy for a Chelsea manager getting sacked when they probably only got the job because of lack of patience shown to other guys before him. So it sort of comes with a territory with that club. And you have to understand it. And Lampard knows that better than anybody because he understands that club better than anybody. So, yeah, I don't I don't feel all that much sympathy for Lampard. Sure, you can always argue in these cases that, that he deserved a little bit more time. But I don't find it to be overly harsh, I guess is my point. Yeah, well, so why does Ole Gunnar Solskjaer get the benefit of the doubt? I think he's done a better job than than Lampard. Um, just just my sense. I know there have been some bumps in the road for him, but I overall I think he's he's done a better job at Manchester United than Lampard has at Chelsea. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Look, as I said before, life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair on or off the field. Um, when it when it comes to this situation, the fact that it's Frank Lampard, that's what I think. And you mentioned it. That's what a lot of people are looking at. And that's what makes it, I think, uh, interesting. As as I mentioned before, it gets you in the door and it doesn't keep you there. Don't worry about Frank Lampard's uh, legacy when it comes to what he means to Chelsea. That that is secure. And I do think that he actually, while you can you can 
you can think that this was a logical and therefore correct decision to make and still believe that he is of quality. And I do think that there will be suitors that will look at his time, uh, even though he's inexperienced, and even though it's not a, 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 a huge uh, length of time, but they will look at it and say, there's something there that I can, uh, you know, that I can utilize. And so I do think that he will have opportunities uh, going forward. But to your point, because the rumor is now that Tuchel's coming in. Uh, and so that, if it's him or anybody else, you got to get all of those things that you talked about, Mossy, functioning. And so that means that Kai Havertz, that means that Timo Werner, it means uh, Christian Pulisic or anybody else. You got to have somebody that's going to come in and light the fire. And you know, you you read these postmortems now, and as is as is per the, per the case always, you're going to have people that are bitter. You're going to have people that say, "Well, I didn't get enough information. I didn't have a good relationship, and there wasn't enough communication, or there wasn't the X's and O's. We didn't know what we were doing." And it'll all be anonymous, as it all as it always is. And look, there, some of it may very well be true. A lot of it, once again, will be will be sour grapes. But whoever comes in, and if it's Tuchel, then his first order is to get all of this talent that's undeniable functioning individually and then collectively uh, as a team right now, because it hasn't been. And Tuchel is interesting because he is, of course, the manager that handed Christian Pulisic his first team debut at Dortmund. They know each other very well. Although when Tuchel left Dortmund, uh, I did hear some rumblings that Pulisic actually wasn't shedding any tears, that him and Tuchel didn't have the greatest relationship. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And Tuchel, yeah, he's a manager who uh, I think has a reputation that's slightly disproportionate to what he's actually achieved. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting that when, when Bayern Munich uh, sacked Niko Kovac last season, uh, they were very interested in, in Tuchel uh, and were going to be willing to wait for him uh, to, at, to the end of the season to lure him from PSG. But Hansi Flick did so well that they felt compelled to give Hansi Flick the job. And of course, he went on to win the treble. And so uh, that whole Tuchel idea was no more. But Bayern Munich was very interested in Tuchel. He obviously managed Dortmund. Then from there, he went to PSG. And now he gets a job at Chelsea. So he's a guy that's held in very high regard around Europe. And uh, I don't know if he's as great as his reputation, but I do think he's a better manager than Frank Lampard. So to me, Chelsea are in better hands today than they were yesterday. Um, I, I do think Tuchel is a pretty good manager. And I'm sure he's relishing this opportunity because for all the difficulties at Chelsea, there is no more awkward managerial job than PSG. I'm sorry. I mean, Tuchel is very much a tactician. There's only so much you can put any kind of tactical uh, footprint on that PSG team when you have Neymar and Mbappe who are kind of going to play however they want to play. Plus, at PSG, you, you live in this sort of awkward uh, existence where the domestic stuff doesn't matter at all. So you, you have basically 50, 60 games a season that don't matter, and you're just ultimately going to be judged on those few Champions League knockout games. At least at Chelsea, the Premier League matters. It, it's more of a nor there's more coaching going on there week to week, and you know you you, you you're going you're going to be judged on a bigger body of work. I mean, you must admit it. It's that that PSG job Hold is incredibly up. awkward. At least Chelsea's Hold amazing to say this about Chelsea, but it's it's a more quote unquote normal situation for a coach to operate in. I'll give you the part of your argument where a lot of the games don't mean anything because you're going to win anyway uh, when it comes to the domestic uh, front. What, what I will bristle at is this, uh, and, I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I hear you saying, Mossy, is that a coach like Tuchel just needs to throw the ball out. Uh, or anybody that's coaching the likes of Neymar or Messi or stuff like that. I, I, I disagree with that. I actually think that it's a different type of coaching. It's a different type of skill set in that 
you have to recognize that you have this prize possession and asking that player to do something that he or she isn't comfortable with, you better have a damn good reason and you better get buy-in from, uh, from that player. And God forbid you don't give that player the ability to do what he or she loves to do and is good at and is therefore why that player is worth that much money. But I, I don't think that you are that you are limited. First off, you know going in what the player what the player is. And I do think that it's the little things that matter. It's the little things where you are affecting and impacting even the greatest players in the world in order to do well. Um, and yes, you're only judged on a few games, like you said, when it comes to something like, like PSG. But I, I'm not sure that, that saying that there's more coaching in the EPL than other places is right and or fair, Mossy. And, and I, I don't know how you say it in French, but if I was if 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 I if I was a French supporter or a French coach or somebody working in the Ligue 1, I would find that incredibly offensive. Um, and I know I'm talking as if it's a fait accompli. I mean, everything I oh, read I is get it. Fait accompli. Everything I, I I read is that it's definitely going to be Tuchel. So until yeah. I by the time we're off yeah, air I mean, here, so, um, it's a, there's a good chance. Um, that, so, that yeah, it'd be interesting to see how he does. Um, All right. What else? What else? What else? Uh, well, uh, let's shift over to Italy uh, because, you know, in, in this compressed pandemic schedule, narratives can can change very quickly. A week ago, we did this podcast and it was all doom and gloom around Juventus uh, because they had had a bad loss to Inter and dropped down the table in Syria. Well, since then, they won a trophy. They beat Napoli in the Super Cup. And then this past weekend, they beat Bologna. Uh, 2-0, while Milan and Inter both dropped points. Uh, Milan got thumped by Atalanta. Inter drew against Udinese. So all of a sudden, the dark clouds have cleared a little bit at Juventus. And in that 2-0 win uh, over Bologna, Wesson McKinney, again, one of the goal scorers, uh, he has been absolutely phenomenal this season. To me, this is we're at about the midway point in the European season, so we can kind of take stock of this. We know there's this nucleus of American players at big clubs now, Pulisic, McKinney, Adams, Reina, Dest. They're all doing well. There's no issues with any of them. But I would say McKinney has been, especially relative to the expectations, the absolute biggest success story. He's been excellent for them. I read the Gazetta dello Sport uh, every day. He's getting showered with praise. Even in articles that are ostensibly negative about Juventus, they always single him out as a bright spot. You know, They say, well, other than Weston McKinney, the new signings haven't performed. Or other than Weston McKinney, the midfield hasn't performed. But nobody has a bad word to say about him. They are definitely going to exercise that permanent buy clause, which is 18 million euros, which everybody's talking about now as, a, as an incredible steal. It's going to look like another horrible piece of business by Schalke. What else is new? Uh, but so nothing but positive things to say about Wesson McKinney. It doesn't matter, Moss. I mean, he plays on one of the best teams in the league. There's no coaching anyway that goes on relative to the EPL. So, I mean, it's basically you just throw the ball out and let them run around. And for the most part, when you play for Juventus, for the most part, the games don't really matter until you really get into it. So I'll, I'll leave my judgment for Juventus and for Weston McKinney until he's actually playing a game that, me that means something. So winning the Italian Cup, pff, who cares? Right, Mossy? Is, is that what it is all about? Come on, man. I'm still fired up by what you said about uh, uh, PSG and Ligo. All right. This is wonderful. This, is, this warms the cockles of my redheaded heart to see what Weston McKinney is doing. Uh, for him individually, uh, for American soccer, um, for history. And uh, he hit the ground running. No fear ever. Um, he was put in a position to succeed, and 
whether it's the goals that he is scoring, the impact that he is making, the you know the uh, the Italians they I think they love his personality. I think they love that when they see this player running around on the field, there is a true joy to what he is doing. There is a commitment. Uh, there is a rugged nature to him that is equaled by his tactical understanding um, and his timing. All of those different things combined are, are making him very, very quickly not a great American player, just a great player who happens to be American. And I think there's a real appreciation um, and a club that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, an appreciation club for who, who Weston McKinney is and for the player that, uh, that he is becoming before our eyes relative to Syria and, uh, and for Juventus. It's, uh, it's wonderful. For all the talk of, you know, Serginho Dest at Barcelona or Christian Pulisic or Giorena or anything like that, this is, uh, th this is great. And I, and I only think it's going to get better because this is a player who I think feeds off of success and is, is well, for the most part, so far, knock on wood, hasn't been satisfied and has not rested on, on laurels. And the next big thing for him is to continue to dominate and to continue to be a undeniable starter for one of the great teams in the world in Juventus, but from an international perspective, to bring the national team back to the promised land, which is the World Cup, and to do well at the World Cup level. And, and those you marry those two together, and you're looking at potentially and, and arguably the greatest American uh, male player ever to play the game. And by the way, he's made you famous again. Uh, a piece <laughs> of you guys have to do a sport today. Yeah, everything's the compare uh, and contrast. Chronicling right? all the different American players that have uh, left their mark in Syria. And of course, you were mentioned as the first. And yeah, I, your name has popped up a lot in the Italian media lately in the context of, of talking about Wesson McKinney. You know, you kind of laid a, a trail for him to follow all these years later. So you should be proud of that. Uh, it was scorched earth for a long time there. Um, <laughs> No, look, it, look, it makes me it makes me incredibly proud. Uh, he is 100 times the player than I ever was, although I would have loved to see what he would have done and the perception we would have had of him if he was playing for Padova, my, my little team. It might have been a, a little bit uh, a little bit different, but it's, he's doing great. And I, I love that they are wrapping their arms around him because it can very quickly go the uh, the other way. Uh, but for now, it's it's great. I want him to keep doing it. You know, he is far and away already in a very, very short period of, period of time established himself as uh, the greatest American to play in Serie A with, with respect to everybody that came before, uh, including Michael Bradley and Gucci Onyewu and, you know, myself and, and others that were there. So there's not a lot of American players that have played in Serie A. And for, so for him to do it and for him to do it uh, at Juventus, that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a big deal. And we should all take pride in what he is doing, and 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 I certainly I certainly do. And, and given my background, it makes me very very happy. So when you know when the uh, when the Italian media calls me to ask, and they even even before he arrived, they they called and I said, look, you are getting this player who is going to open your eyes. That you are getting a player that, if given the opportunity, is going to very, very quickly endear yourself because of the way that he plays and because of the, the big personality that he has. And um, 
you know, they're, they're falling in love, and rightfully so, because this is, this is someone who is worthy of the love and praise that he is getting. Uh, one last else, quick Serie note before we move on to another league. Uh, our producer, Jeff H., uh, really wanted to get this in. Uh, Irving Lozano scored uh, a goal for Napoli nine seconds into the game this past week, and Napoli actually ended up losing 3-1 to Verona. Uh, but Lozano actually having a pretty good season. That was his ninth Serie A goal of the campaign. However, it wasn't even the fastest Serie A goal this season because a few weeks back, Rafael Leon of AC Milan scored six seconds into their game against Sassuolo. Uh, and I mentioned I mentioned that same week when Leon scored that goal that I was watching a Copa Libertadores game, Santos Gremio, in which uh, Santos striker Caio Jorge scored after like 10 seconds. So I don't know why, but lately we're having all these incredibly early goals. Uh, to- well, you know, you've already expressed, uh, you know, how meaningless coaching is in the game, uh, this podcast. But uh, there can be nothing more frustrating and irritating for a coach than nine seconds into the game to have the opposition score on you. The The only silver lining is that you got 89 and a half minutes uh, to fix it. But it's not as if we've I've been on teams where you have done kickoff plays in that listen we got the ball it's kind of a set play what are we going to do and a lot of it is just pie in the sky hopeful type of stuff and this was also this this never should have happened and that you could probably say that for almost every single one of these 10 second goals a ball long ball out off the kickoff kickoff everybody run down Chuck, Chucky is running the center back completely misses the ball completely. Like it never should happen. There's not, it's not about coaching. It's not about anything other than the guy dorked out and uh, the ball went under him and Chucky, uh, Chucky scored. So, but from a Chucky perspective, this is good because there was a time and I'll be the first to, to admit that I didn't think it was going to last with him in Italy and it still might not, but he's going through a really good period right now where he's playing. He's scoring, like you said, nine goals. That's a good thing for, for him. It's a good thing for the Mexican national team. And that, that's going to happen. That's going to happen at some point in the future. And I can't wait to see, given all the different narratives that are going on right now about the players and the teams that are, uh, that are involved in CONCACAF. And, you know, we've talked about how much Zlatan is elevating his legend this season with what he's doing at AC Milan. There's a similar story playing out with a veteran striker in Spain. Atletico continued to roll in La Liga this past weekend. They beat Valencia 3-1. Luis Suarez among the goal scorers. He is the joint top scorer in La Liga with 12 goals, 12 and 15 games, which is the best start for a player in La Liga with a new club since 2009 when Cristiano Ronaldo scored 13 in his first 15 games at Real Madrid in his debut campaign with them. So Suarez having an incredible impact. Uh, Barcelona looking, frankly, ridiculous for letting him go essentially for free to Atletico Madrid. They're starting Martin Braithwaite in games and Atletico Madrid have Luis Suarez. And they alienated Messi even more by doing that because Suarez was his best friend on the team. Uh, And Atletico Madrid, they are now seven points clear of Real Madrid, 10 points clear of Barcelona with a game in hand. So if they win that game in hand, it'd be 10 points on Real, 13 points on Barcelona at the midway point of the campaign. And it's starting to look just you know, mathematically, like they're, they're definitely going to win it. I mean, it's hard to see other, they're clearly the best team in La Liga this season. And unless something really out, out of the ordinary happens in the second half of the campaign. Uh, so, yeah, but I mean, Luis Suarez, I know a favorite of yours. And I mean, it's just amazing, amazing what he's doing. I, I love Luis Suarez. I would have him on any team, anywhere, at, at, at any time. You know, I, I think I said earlier in the pod that it's amazing what will be forgiven uh, and that what we will put aside relative to uh to athletes having uh, you know having said that 
um, you know, Luis Suarez, in my mind, that is a player that you want when you go into a competition because he will do whatever it takes, and he's a winner. Wherever he goes, he will find a way to win. He won't, won't make any excuses. So you think it's over then? You're, you're calling it here in January. It's over. I, I wouldn't say completely over. You know, we're, we live in such a sort of Real Madrid, Barcelona-centric world there in Spain that it's hard to wrap your head around somebody other than those two running away with it. But so, I, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to say it's completely over, but boy, it's getting there. I mean, they're... they're... Just say it. Say it, Masi. <laughs> Come on. Say it. Say it. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Masi? Uh, and then I want to hit it, uh, England quickly. Uh, there was a massive FA Cup game this past weekend. Uh, Manchester United uh, eliminated Liverpool 3-2 at Old Trafford. Uh, very entertaining match. Both teams put out strong lineups back and forth. Um, United's uh, winning goal scored by Bruno Fernandes, a, a great free kick that he curled past Allison, came kind of against the run of play because when Liverpool had equalized 2-2 through Mo Salah, they then had a really good spell where it looked like they were going to take the lead. They had a couple of great opportunities. Alexander-Arnold denied from close range. Salah also denied after a lovely through ball from Firmino. And it was sort of the momentum of the game was all with Liverpool. And then lo and behold, United go and get that winning goal. Uh, but so a great result for them. Martin Tyler said after the game that these are two clubs headed in opposite directions. And, and yeah, I mean, you start to, you know, we all think this is just a blip for, for Liverpool, but you wonder how long it's going to last, particularly with their problems at the back. You know, for anybody wondering why Klopp is playing midfielders at center back, well, you were reminded of what the alternatives were in this game because he started this kid, Reese Williams, who was a disaster. So that's who else he has as an option. So that's why Jordan Henderson is starting games back there alongside Fabinho. Uh, so, you know, Liverpool definitely have some problems uh, at the center back position. It's, it's caused this domino effect, weakening the midfield as well. So uh, they've, they've got some issues and now they're out of the FA cup after a painful defeat to their arch rivals. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that they kind of diced them and sliced them over, open over the top, you mentioned, you know, even Rashford's ball, which was incredible, wonderful, oh. wonderful ball, even for a, a season center back, it would be, it would be difficult, but they did recognize that that over the top type of thing, um, was important. I'll be interested in your take, uh, the, the winning goal. If you're a goalkeeper, okay. Conventional wisdom says that if the, if the, if the ball goes over the wall and goes in, okay. I mean, you got to be able to. That's that's where you're you're kind of anticipating and covering. But if it goes not over the wall and goes in, then it's on you. Did you did you look at the goalkeeper on that third goal? No, I know what you're saying, but man, that shot was so perfectly placed, and and also I think Pogba did a good job of like blocking Allison's vision on it, and so. Boy, looking at the replay, it's hard to say that Allison was really at fault on that. I mean, it, it was just hit so hard and perfectly in the corner, and, and he didn't have much time to react to it. And I think it's human nature as a goalkeeper that you are leaning a little bit the other way because odds are he's going to try to curl it over the wall. So, yeah, I would give more credit to Bruno know, Fernandez honestly. there. Am I, am, I, am, I, am, I, am I viewing that play Allison? through Brazilian tinted glasses? Yeah, who does Allison play for? He, he plays for... <laughs> Um, yeah, I think you are. I think that Zach Stefan it's makes not that one. Too. It's not one where you publicly say, "What the hell was our goalkeeper doing?" <laughs> but I think if you're on the team, you're saying, "Come on, man." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look. Uh, it, yeah, okay. I mean, there's a million different things, and it's easy from my uh, my chair here in Los Angeles to tell him how to uh, how to make the save. But I, I did think about it. And I'm still thinking about it. And you might be coming at it um, from, with Brazilian eyes. But okay. All right. 
look, it's not a crisis at Liverpool, but as you mentioned, things change. And injuries and situations and other teams coming up, uh, this, is, this is not the juggernaut that we have come to associate with Jurgen Klopp and, uh, and Liverpool right now. But I don't get... I, it's almost as if because they got to the mount, because they finally did it, it's not that people don't care. It's that I, I, they're given a whole lot of benefit of the doubt. And there are excuses, plenty of them, legitimate ones, but also plenty of excuses that are made for this team. Uh, and, and, you know, that's actually a credit to them. They've, they've been so good and have done such wonderful things in the eyes of, of all, but also in the eyes of, uh, of the supporters, is that they are willing to, to give a pass in this moment. And, I, and I, I, if they hadn't done what they have done, I mean, I think all hell would be breaking loose uh, in, uh, in the way that this team is viewed. And they've still found a way to just, just kind of stay in there, but this is not an infallible type of team. This is not a team that runs through everybody. And this is not a team now, I think, that other teams fear in the way that they have not so long ago. What else, Mossy? And then uh, last story in this segment, um, FIFA have come out and said that if these European clubs do uh, break off and form a Super League, none of the players that compete in that Super League will be allowed to take part in the World Cup, which a lot of people saw as posturing and something that if the European clubs really called FIFA's bluff on that, if they went tomorrow and formed the Super League, Johnny Infantino is going to ban Messi and Ronaldo from playing in the next World Cup. seems hard to believe, but it was just sort of FIFA making it clear where they stand on this issue, which is interesting because Johnny Infantino has been trying to um, form this expanded FIFA Club World Cup with all these big European clubs and UEFA haven't liked that either. And he's been criticized for being something of a traitor because he used to be the head of UEFA and now he moves to FIFA and and tries to create a new competition that's going to undermine UEFA. But this is him showing support to UEFA, specifically in this whole European Super Club issue and making clear where he stands on it. But I don't know that it's going to have much effect overall. I mean, what do you what do you make of this? So you're saying that uh, there's some hypocrisy going on, uh, possibly? (laughs) Gee, what a surprise. Um, no, look, I, I understand why FIFA feels they have to do this and they're going to play to a lot of people that are fe- that that are feeling and fearing that this is going to mess up uh, mess up their world. I, I get it. But to your point, uh, the the fact that there could potentially be a new platform or a new way of watching things or something that, defies tradition, you know, that's, that's another way of defining or saying progress or evolution uh, or change. And oftentimes we, uh, we fear that type of change that's coming, either because we personally are going to lose something uh, or we are just worried about the, that, that process of changing. So I just think that that's it's 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 human nature, and Johnny kind of did what he needed to do, but it's not going to change anything if this is going to happen. It's interesting that these clubs are able to hold the threat of a Super League over Wafer's head every time they're negotiating a new Champions League deal, and they're able to extract some concessions from Wafer as a result. And the latest plan you hear 
uh, for sort of a revamped Champions League that would that would kick in in 2024 is for there to be added spots that would go to clubs that have been historically successful in the competition. So that would be a way to ensure that the likes of Manchester United and AC Milan are always in there, regardless of how they performed in the previous campaign. And also they would restructure the tournament in such a way where teams would be guaranteed to play more games. Instead of dividing it up into so many different groups, they would just have like two giant groups and everybody would play like 10 games and then the best teams in each group would qualify for the knockout stage. But so, you know, if UEFA make any more concessions, we're going to end up with a super league anyway in a few years. So we're sort of going in that path. So I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, but I guess it's what they feel they have to do to sort of keep these clubs from breaking off completely. So. If you give people an opportunity to mitigate risk in an already risky proposition, they are going to take it, okay? So that should be a surprise to no one. We have this conversation when it comes to promotion relegation and, 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 and all, of that kind of, all of that kind of stuff. We'll see. I mean, ultimately, there, there's going to be plenty of soccer, maybe in different forms going forward. There's going to be even more money. Uh, the rich will get richer probably. But ultimately, it, we as fans, that's what the real question is. Do we as fans benefit from these types of situations? Are we getting better games? Are we getting more high-level games? Are we getting more balanced games between teams? To your point earlier about someone like PSG, are we seeing these, these super clubs of the world now on a more consistent basis playing each other and therefore in a more competitive environment? And is that a good thing? Or is it too much of a good thing? Are we... Are we taking away the unique aspect of the fact that it doesn't happen all the time? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, this is what's going to have to be answered. Anything else, Mossy? That is it. All right. We're going to take another quick break. Uh, and when we come back, uh, yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. Uh, so don't go away. All right, we're back, and it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, different platforms, and we pick a few each week. You don't have to use the hashtag. Um, you don't even have to ask me a question. Sometimes we even grab a question that uh, I just, you know, tickles my fancy out there. All right, so what do we uh, what do we pick this week, Mossy? First up, Ivan L asks. Why don't MLS and Adidas let teams get creative with their jerseys? Every team has the same bland white away jersey. Hmm. So this is uh, a, a criticism and, I guess, a question that is evergreen. Uh, Adidas is the official outfitter, athletic outfitter, for the entire league. When I first started back in the 1900s playing for MLS, there were a handful of um, official outfitters. For example, I was playing in New England. Reebok sponsored Reebok. So when we went out on the field, we were wearing a Reebok-designed uniform. Uh, for example, uh, LA, if I remember correctly, was Nike. Um, and there was, a, you know, DC United was Adidas. So there was a different thing. But they recognized that from uh, a business perspective, uh, and this is what MLS often does, it's common practice of bundling types of things and therefore getting more than just selling things individually. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. MLS recognized that in and of itself, being a collective, they recognized that if they sell it all lock, stock, and barrel to someone like, in this case, it would be Adidas, they would get more than if they just did it individually. And the collective is important, especially for a single, a single entity. So that is why Adidas and how Adidas came to be the official supplier uh, and major sponsor when it comes to uh, Major League Soccer. By the way, Nike sponsors the U.S. 
national team in the U.S. Uh, soccer Federation. So that's where they spend their soccer money. What has happened is, like you mentioned in this question, there is a template for the uniforms, the jerseys, the kits, whatever word you want to use for them. Adidas, their reason for being in the soccer space is because they believe that being with uh, Major League Soccer is going to help them sell more Adidas apparel and gear, right? Makes sense. Everybody understands that. So what has happened is they have these shells. And then within the shell, each team is able to do some different things. But there is a basic type of shell that you use. Because what they don't want to have happen is people not to know that that is Adidas out there. And so when you're buying that and you're spending your hundreds of millions of dollars with MLS in this case, yes, you are Adidas, but you want people to know that it's Adidas. And how do we know it's Adidas? Well, we see the little Adidas sign or we see the little swoosh sign when it comes to Nike. But that's, you know, that's not a huge, huge sign. So what they have done is said, all right, well, while we can't change the little Adidas sign, we can make it so that the actual uniform and shell represents the band, uh, the brand. And that's what they have done. Now, this has brought up, uh, as, as you mentioned, some, you know, some irritation uh, and some anger because of the, shall I say, cookie cutter type of aesthetic that we have. I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. As I said, it's a, it's a business strategy time tested that they are going to continue uh, continue to do. It does make for some some at times very bland and unimaginative type of, uh, of pieces. So if you're going to blame anybody, I guess you could blame Adidas or anybody else because plenty of other brands out there uh, would do this and and uh, and do do this. I don't see this changing a um, dramatically. there are there are certain things and look, you know, I've I've worked with Adidas in the past, um, and whether it's Adidas or Nike or anybody else, they will work with the team to try to make it as unique and reflective of what you want for your club and for your brand and your aesthetic and your community as you can. But I don't I don't see this changing because Adidas, they spend that money so that when you look on the field, they want you to immediately recognize that that is an Adidas team, and you see it you see it happen in a World Cup. Because there's oftentimes in a World Cup where all the teams are wearing different brands, you will immediately recognize that shell on the field, and that's an, that's an Adidas team, or that's a Nike team. And that's why they do it, and that's why they did that deal. And that's not going to change anytime, uh, anytime soon. So um, your, question, your, your next question would be, yes, but if somebody came out with a really, really unique and different and creative type of uniform, wouldn't they, if everybody did that, wouldn't they sell more? Yeah, probably, maybe, maybe not, maybe not. Once again, the, the collective is, is the most important thing in their eyes. I don't know, Mossy, does it, does it bother you that much, the uniforms right now? I do, I, I, I would agree that I, it bothers me when I see something that lacks creativity. So I think within the shell, you can still get, get creative. I think a lot of people just, want no holds you know uh bar just do whatever you want oh doesn't bother me okay. it just has to look authentic you want it to look authentic <laughs> all right that, that's uh, basically yellow 
<laughs> uh, next question. Uh, Lebrontosaurus James uh, wants to know, thoughts on the future of the NWSL now that the U.S. Women's National Team members are starting to be lured abroad by the uh, filthy – now help me out here. What is this word he, he put here? Lucre? Is that what they said? Lucre? Uh, well, let's, 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 let's end it at money. thoughts on the future of NWSL now that U.S. Women's members are starting to be lured abroad. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, what he's referencing is is the money and the at times the word exodus has been used, but it really it really isn't. Um, I, as I've said before, I think that this is a good thing for soccer, uh, for the NWSL and for women's uh, for women's soccer, because for a long time, NWSL has it's not been the only game in town, but it has been arguably the best league in the world. And as I said, arguably, there's, there's those w- that would argue against it, but I, I would argue that. Now, you, you, you better not kill that golden goose. And we've seen a migration happen, uh, even in our own lifetime. You look at, earlier we were talking about Serie A and how they lost that mantle. Very often in the 70s and 80s um, and into the 90s was the place to be. And they lost it to, uh, uh, to England. So that type of migration and that change certainly can happen. I think that this is a warning shot. I think that this is an important um, type of warning shot for NWSL. I, I, you know, I don't think that NWSL is running around saying the sky is falling, but I do think that they recognize that as bigger players get into the game, that they have to up their game. The ownership has to um, do bigger things in order to compete. And by the way, when you're competing, you're competing against some very, very big internationally renowned brands out there, Man Cities and Manchester United's, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. And so you have to have the fortitude and the stomach to be able to compete in that international aspect of it. Because a lot of times that compare and contrast, you ended up being on top and winning. And when that balance changes, that's a problem. It's something that the men's game has had to do for a long time, and oftentimes when that when that comparison has happened, they haven't been able to live uh, to live up to it, which is you know part of the problem and part of the struggle and the daily uh, daily type of daily type of uh, daily type of fight. But some of it is just the experience, as we've said before. A lot of these players to get that European experience uh, both on and off the field, and then and then they'll come back. But other ones, you know, how are you going to keep them down on the farm? Uh, what's what's going to happen if they say, hey? Not only is this a great lifestyle, but I'm making more money. And if they can't compete from a financial perspective, very, very quickly, that lifestyle is going to become more and more appealing. And there will be that drain. I don't think it's an exodus yet. I just think it's, as I said, a a warning shot and a welcome one if you're NWSL that you you better have your stuff together uh, going forward. Because if the world comes calling, Given the infrastructure and the and the uh, and the history that it has, especially when it comes to Europe, they can find a way to make something very very attractive. And the scenario and the situation that the men's game has had to deal with, that can very very quickly become the case in the women's game, where everybody looks to Europe as the be all and the end all, whether it comes to whether it comes to the competition uh, or the money. And when you lose that, it's very very difficult to get it back. What else, Masi? Uh, we'll end with a fun non-soccer one that you requested. You you, you really want to chime in on this issue. Uh, I do. Not Van Jones, but Van Lathan asks, if Brady wins the Super Bowl, is he the greatest 
athlete of all time, like across all sports, the greatest ever. I, I saw this this morning and it made me uh, chuckle because it's, you know, this is, this is like catnip. Okay. Uh, and that's, there's a, there's a reason why this question was put out there. Um, first off, remind me again where, um, we're calling Tom Brady, 40, 42 years old, something like that. Remind me again, where did he, uh, matriculate from? Where, where's he from? Uh, University of Michigan. So One thing we can is agree is that if, if he wins his seventh Super Bowl, he surpasses me as the most successful Michigan alum. <laughs> Boy, the, your Wolverines could use Tom Brady's pinky toe right now, and that would probably make them better. All right, so uh, Tom Brady, and, and, and I, I don't claim to be a, uh, a, a connoisseur of, of American football or football in general. I don't know a whole lot about, but correct me if I'm wrong, Mossy. Tom Brady has never played defense before in his life, right? Correct. So all he does is basically do half of a sporting event, right? And in, and, and in a sport where... Literally half of the team is designed for a specific function, which is either defense or offense. And the, the two rarely, if ever, actually meet, right? Correct. So, all right. Well, first and foremost, that would disqualify him in my book to begin with. Now, look, I know I'm being a little bit flip here. This, this best athlete, first off, means that you have to define what, what an athlete is. And, you know, I did a, uh, I, I think I mentioned this before, I did a, a, a coffee book where this guy took pictures of athletes of all different types of sports. And all we were wearing was you know, black kind of like uh, boxer shorts types of things. So it was just to show what great athletes look like and the diverse and very, very different way that athletes from a body perspective look. So you first have, would have to define what the greatest athlete is. Is it just about winning? Okay, because there's plenty of people that have won as much, if not more, uh, than him. What are the actual sports? No, there are not that many. <laughs> sure there are. Sure there are. Sure, what, what? Tiger Woods, how many, how many has he won? <laughs> No, no, how many tournaments are, has you, Tiger Woods? There are many. I mean, that's a, if the guy wins seven Super Bowls. I mean, that's that's. Well, but oh, oh, within within football is what you're saying. Well, just in general, he is one of the great winners in American team sports history. Okay, I mean. Well, Messi's not never been able to win a Super Bowl, so how can you compare that? Okay, so, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so look, is he? The GOAT when it comes to football, American football? Absolutely. Got no problem saying that. But the best athlete ever? No. Come on. I mean, if you put Tom Brady and asked him to do some of the quote-unquote athletic feats that, and I'm not even just talking about soccer, to pick a billion different, other different sports, he would not be able to do it. Does that mean that uh, that he's not a good football player? No. As I said, I, I'd argue he's the greatest football player ever, which which I'm fine arguing. What, what do you think? Do you think that he is, to, to this, uh, this question's point, the best athlete ever? Well, again, uh, like as you mentioned, the, the word athlete can, be, can mean different things. You know, it, it, there, there's one sense of it in which the greatest athlete I ever saw was Bo Jackson. Mm -hmm. Just in terms of actual raw physical ability and, and who was stronger and could run faster and jump higher. And Bo Jackson was a 
like legitimate star player at two different sports. Uh, he was like an all-star major league baseball player and a, a pro ball running back at the same time, which is mind boggling. So in that sense of the word, he is the greatest athlete, but then there's a different sense of taking like the Michael Jordans and, and Tom Brady's and, and sort of, you know, most dominant, most successful athletes in sort of team sports in terms of how many championships they won and, and all the, all the rest. And so, yeah, Brady has certainly entered that discussion with Jordan and, you know, uh, Wayne Gretzky and people like that. I mean, he's, what's the, uh, what's, what's the event in the Olympics, the, uh, where they do all the different things, the heptapolon or what, what, whatever it's called. Uh, anyway, you know, you know, the thing I'm talking about, right? Right. I mean, that's, th I guess that would be the fairest way to assess somebody's athleticism in getting him or her to do as many different quote unquote athletic actions as possible and then seeing how well they do it. Because you mentioned Bo Jackson, you know, can Bo Jackson take a ball from 40 yards uh, out of the, uh, on the half volley and with his off foot, uh, rifle it on a rope into the upper 90, okay? As good as he was as a baseball and football player. No. Does that mean he's not a good athlete? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that this is this is a this is a great question because it makes us examine athletes and it makes us examine what truly is athleticism. Because you know, I argue that that that, that golf isn't. Uh, you know, I, I argue with my son all the time that golf isn't a sport. Okay, doesn't mean it doesn't take incredible talent. It doesn't mean it doesn't even take incredible physical talent to be able to do things. But I, I just find it very, very hard to call that a sport. Wonderful arts and craft type of uh, situation. But, but ultimately, when now, I look at these things, you have to make your own decision as to what an athlete is, as to what a sport is. But you know, we make all of these decisions, and then uh, it, it comes. So your, the answer to that question is no. In no way, shape, or form is Tom Brady whether he wins or not in the Super Bowl here in a couple of weeks, the greatest athlete ever to play sports. Now, to draw uh, one parallel to the sport we cover, soccer, um, Brady, it reminds me of the Messi situation in a way in that he sort of lived in this cocoon, to, to borrow a word that you've used. Uh, he had spent his entire 20-year career with the Patriots playing for the same coach, Bill Belichick, for the same owner, Bob Kraft. Mm -hmm. And you did sort of wonder if you took him out of that cocoon and put him somewhere else, how, what would that look like? And the fact that at 43 years of age, he left the Patriots and went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who hadn't won a playoff game in 17 years or whatever it was, and has led him to the Super Bowl is a mind-boggling achievement. I mean, he that's, is. That's why I say he's the greatest football player that, in my estimation, the greatest football player ever to play the game. Well, undeniable. Well, for me, it's undeniable, but I'm sure there's others that uh, that disagree. So, yeah, it All would right. be the equivalent, I suppose, of Messi if he does, in fact, leave Barcelona. Now, it doesn't quite work because it, presumably Messi would go to like a super club. But but let's say he went to some one team that's not a super club. It doesn't uh -huh. have as Stoke. great a pedigree and then led them to the Champions League title. Stoke. I mean, it would be something like that. Yeah. Stoke signs Messi and off we go. That would be it. Um, yeah, no, that 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 would that would definitely be it. And, and that's why when, um, when we talk about the Messi versus Cristiano evergreen question, I always fall on the side of Cristiano because of his ability to do it at multiple places. I mean, what Tom Brady has done, and even more so Tom Brady, to your point, going to a team, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Cristiano going from Manchester United to Real Madrid to Juventus, uh, you know, these, these super clubs. This was, with all due respect, Tampa. And yet, 
amazingly, uh, the dude just finds a way to win regardless of what's going on. And he's got them back into a Super Bowl where he does his best work. Having said all that, you got a prediction, an early prediction right now. A lot, still a lot to come as we get through all the hoopla. But uh, if you had to pick Rick right now, I mean, Mahomes I'm picking is... uh, Grant Wall's Chiefs. Um, I think this is going to be something of a, a passing of the baton because this Patrick Mahomes, it's his league now. I mean, he's he's just out of this world. He's unlike anything we've ever seen. And I think he's going to outduel Brady and, and win another Super Bowl. All right. Well, we'll see. Uh, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. We're going to take one more quick break. And when we come back, oh, yeah, I'll give you my one for the road. All right. We're back. And it's time for my uh, one for the road here. And I, I was thinking about Music. Music is a, is a huge part of my life. It has been. I continue to write and to record and to perform for all three of my music fans out there, including my mom. But uh, Mossy, you were, you were telling me a story. I guess give, give the folks out there a little synopsis of the story you were telling me because it got me thinking about athletes and music. All right, so AC Milan striker Rafael Leon, who has already been mentioned on today's podcast, by the way, because he's the fellow that scored the fastest goal in Serie A history six seconds into a game a few weeks back. Uh, he is releasing a rap album, uh, and that prompted the uh, Gazeta dello Sport to uh, reflect back on other soccer players who have also dabbled in music. And you were mentioned in the article, which I sent to you, and I got a big kick out of that, reading uh, reading about your music exploits in the Gazeta dello Sport. And so I know you uh, that, that got your mind going a little bit. It, it did. I mean, uh, the whole music aspect of, uh, of my, my life and my career and my persona, and I guess nowadays it would be called my brand, was something that I... I I recognized and played up from the start. Um, it, look, I, I also recognized very early on that in order for any of the music uh, to be taken at all seriously, it, it didn't have to just be good. It had to be really good just to be looked at as good because of a whole history uh, that is littered with uh, athletes and actors uh, and other people of prominence uh, using that that platform to uh, to do to do music and to uh, you know to play out something that that they had harbored for many many years. You know, I I always took uh, and still take the music as seriously as anything that uh, that I've ever done in the past. But I knew that it was going to be looked at differently. I also knew that it would provide me different opportunities, and it, and it had. It gave me opportunities to tour and to record uh, and to meet different people and opportunities uh, to market in different ways. Um, it, the, you know, the problem is, is that a lot of times it's these types of vanity projects. And I, I always wanted to guard against that. Now, look, I haven't heard his, his album. The, 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 the other part of the reality is that a lot of it's crap. Okay. A lot of it, like I said, is these vanity pro, uh, projects where you can tell very, very quickly that the, artist, quote unquote artist, in this case, it would be a, uh, an athlete, isn't invested and is just doing it to live out some sort of fantasy and even and oftentimes isn't even doing it. Um, the songs are written for them. They're not really involved, all of that kind of stuff. And I always wanted to guard uh, against that. And um, but I also knew that in order for me to be the soccer player and ultimately the person that I was at the time playing, 
I knew that I had to have music in my life. And even after many, many years now, multiple decades now where I haven't kicked a ball, music is something that was actually there before I started sports and has continued on after I started sports. And whether it's for one person or a million people, it doesn't matter. Music is one of those things that you, you have to do. And so I, I wish him well if this is truly something that he loves and truly is an expression of, of what he is, he is about. You know, the other part of it is that you have to recognize why you are often given these opportunities in this platform. And a lot of it comes from what you are and what you have done on the field. And if in any way it detracts or takes away from what you are doing on the field, you're very quickly going to lose that platform. And you're very, very quickly going to come in for, uh, come in for criticism. Plenty of times there were uh, accusations, either publicly or privately, that being you know, involved in music... Um, was taking me away from what my priority should be and my livelihood, my job. And I, I understand that. I, I understand those are fair criticisms and concerns to have. But I also recognized and would meet those criticisms with uh, the argument that if you take that away from me, I'm even lesser of a player and ultimately lesser of a person. We all need different, we all need different things. And it might be something higher profile like doing music or something like that. It might be something that's very low pri profile and, and doesn't uh, necessarily uh, check boxes or make people look a, a little differently of you. I just know that I am, I am better for not just having music in my life, but for making sure that music has stayed, uh, stayed in my life. And it is, as I said, enabled me to travel the world. It's enabled me to do different things that I never would have done if I was just simply uh, simply that soccer player. And we all have different things that we need in order to function in our, uh, in, our, in our daily lives. And there were times where I would get up in the morning, I would go to training, and then from training, I would go to the uh, recording studio and I would work on stuff. And then from the recording studio, I might go to a, a television studio, at which point I would talk about soccer and oftentimes music. And I would play a song and do all those different things. And so that was... That was what I loved to do, and that's, I do believe, what made me happy and made me function to the best of my, uh, to the best of my abilities. But it does rub some people the wrong way, especially when you try to do two very high-profile types, uh, types of things. And look, I would do it no matter what, whether anybody listened or, uh, or didn't listen. And I love to uh, do it, um, and I will continue to do it. I will continue to write music. I will continue to perform, and I will continue to... Uh, release uh, music to the public because it's something that I have to do. And I think if you ask any musician or artist out there, ultimately it's something that you have to do. And if you have that art in your life, um, I will always encourage that. And hopefully it's being done for the right reasons. And hopefully at its core, it's, it's something that speaks to you and something that you have an equal passion for. And I hope this is the case for, uh, for this young man or anybody else that uh, gets those opportunities in that platforms that otherwise wouldn't be made available if they weren't doing well on a soccer field in this case or any other uh, athletic endeavor out there. And it's the, the history is littered with different athletes, some very, very good and very, very accomplished and some horrible. Uh, so there's a spectrum of, of uh, music out there. Maybe I'll put together a list of some of the stuff that I, that I like um, and some of the stuff maybe that uh, the hits and the misses, if you will, going forward, which I guess is... 
a good point to tell uh, to everybody that they certainly can find that uh, music out there on all the different platforms, whether it's Spotify or Apple or anything else out there uh, that you can check out um, all the music, like I said, for all three of you that, uh, that dig it, including my mother. Well, not always my mother, but usually my mother. So thank you very much. Mossy, anything uh, before we head out? That's it. We went a little long today. i uh, give you a little bonus uh, State of the Union, but we always appreciate uh, that you hang out with us and listen and watch uh, wherever you do. Please continue to subscribe and to rate and to review and to do all those things that we love. We will talk to you again next week on the State of the Union podcast. And until that time, as always, size the day. Yeah.